0: That's a big notebook for just two songs, Daniel. You're going to teach on... Wrong. You're going to... You all the notes from Sunday. Yeah, yeah, all the notes from Sunday. All the attempts to spell all those names without seeing them written down. Or better yet, the fear that runs through pastor's mind when he realizes, I haven't said all these names out loud. I've only read them a hundred times, so here we go. We'll see if we can pronounce them right and not sound like an absolute idiot in front of everybody, but... Anyways, glad you're here tonight, church uh, family. Um, here's what we're going to do. Really, it kind of coming back from Sunday, we're going to pause church history for a week because uh, there's, a, there's as I've thought more on it, there's probably several ways the passage we came to Sunday, at least the 35 verses we looked at, we could have walked through it. One, one might have been just simply to give you a handout and say, hey, these 35 verses, there's all these prophecy fulfilled, and just psh, not even try to read through it. I elected... To read through it, um, because I, uh, as, as I read one person a day, uh, perhaps the most single worshipful act we can do as a church body is simply to just read His Word, because it's alone and errant. Um, and, uh, but I, I think there's something important to see. Here's, here's what Scripture said would happen. Hear it in the Word, God said it. Here's how it happened, just like He said it. And it opens up this, this it, 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 it pulls back maybe more than anywhere else in Daniel, in Daniel 11, over what would be a several hundred year period, it pulls back the curtain on what I think you could make a case is, is undeniably the dominant theme of the book of Daniel as far as who God is, which is God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the affairs of this world And over the course of human history, and very specifically in the book of Daniel, how God's sovereignty relates specifically to His people who are living in hard times in this world and in human history. That's a massive subject to try to comprehend, and it seems to me, it has tended to be, and this may just be my experience, and I need to be careful to not read my experience on everybody, but God's sovereignty is one of those things that is often misunderstood What do we actually mean when we say he's sovereign? Uh, And then what on earth does that mean when it comes into our lives? When it comes into our lives, when you flip on the news and you try to make heads or tails of what's going on in the world you're living in, but also what's that mean for your lives when you wake up tomorrow morning and at eight o'clock do whatever you do normally at eight o'clock on a Thursday morning? Because it has implications for both. And as you're gonna and in and, and, and set up for this coming Sunday where all of a sudden we flip from prophecy that's been fulfilled to prophecy yet to be fulfilled which speaks of an end time that's far worse than anything that we've seen in what's already been. It is pivotal as the people of God that we understand what it means that he is sovereign and what it what on earth are we supposed to do with that knowledge otherwise we'll, Fall to one side or another. And so tonight, really, what I want to do is I just want to get through the rest of the application, go back and kind of re hit one or two things about the truth that God is sovereign, and just get through the rest of the application that Sunday we just didn't have time for. What I didn't tell you Sunday, and I'll tell you now, is the back projector was malfunctioning Sunday in church. So I had to try to work my way through that whole passage without the aid of any clock on the back wall. And so occasionally I'd swipe my phone under the clear uh, pulpit to try to see if I could see, is that, is that, what number is there? I got to figure out where we're at. So when I said, we got out a minute late, that's God's grace. She is, because I didn't know what time it was most of the time. But don't worry, the clock's there tonight. Um, I see it, big white. It's not like preaching class, where when you get down to the last five minutes of your time, it starts flashing in red at you. It's very frightening. Um anyways okay so here's what we said here's here's what we said coming out of Sunday's passage we said this God is sovereign and foreknowing all things as he works out his redemptive plan over the course of history so God is sovereign part of sovereignty means he knows everything he knows everything actual he knows everything possible now to contrast that with us we know a few things that are actual and we speculate on a couple things that are possible. What do I mean by that? I mean, the actual things we know, most of us are very limited in the amount of knowledge we actually have of reality. It's very small. So things that are actual. And when I say that we might speculate on a few things that are possible, I mean, you could certainly go, well, it's possible that I could go get dessert tonight after church. It's also possible I could go get a hamburger. Well, yeah, okay, you know something possible. But when we talk about God, God knows everything everything there is in actual existence, every piece of knowledge that is capable of being known, he knows. But he doesn't just know everything actual, he knows everything possible. He knows it all. When we say he knows it all, he knows it all. He knows every, which I mean, just taking down a rabbit hole for saying, it means he knows every way he could have created all of creation. And he also knows every, the fullness of the way he actually created all of creation. He knows everything, and part of that knowledge implies that he doesn't just know everything presently, but to him, everything is present because God exists outside of time. So he sees the past, the present, and the future all at once. That's why Jesus can say, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. It's all present, which to just give you this right now so we can try to wrap, when we talk about God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's plan, His will, His purposes, understand that we are we are but Lego people trying to comprehend a, a, a being beyond our understanding. And we've got to be careful to not put God under the same limitations that we have in trying to understand him. So that's why I said, when we use the term foreknowledge, God knows everything that has yet to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows if you're going to go get dessert or a hamburger after church tonight. He knows. He knows everything that's going to happen in your life, in my life, in our lives, in the rest of world history. He knows. Because for him not to know would mean he doesn't possess all knowledge, and that's a really frightening possibility. And by the way, there are churches that teach that, just so you're aware. It's called open theology or process theology, depending on how they want to spin it. But when we say foreknowledge, that's us using a term that makes sense to us. It means God knows what to us has yet to happen. And That's clear to understand that way because if we just say, well, well, God foreknows, but we put the same time constraints on God that we have, well, that means for God to foreknow means that it was already predetermined in a way that was set in stone, and all of a sudden, you start going down this path of fatalism. Well, what does it matter? Why should I choose? Whatever I choose has already been predetermined, and that can take you down another dangerous rabbit hole. So understand, it is never appropriate for us to put our limitations on God, that is another way of us trying to make God in our image. And that one we do naively and unintentionally, but putting God in our image is at the end of the day sin. And so we understand God knows all things actual, He knows all things possible, so therefore He foreknows all the things we don't know, all the things that have yet to be, He knows. Not only that, but because he knows all of this, because he's sovereign, he has all power, he has all knowledge, he has all might, he is, and remember that definition of sovereignty from Sunday, he is free to act as he wills. He does not have to act permission from anybody. He doesn't need to go get counsel on what's the best course of action. Um, he's not at a loss. He doesn't need to go take a master's class or, or uh, sign up for a symposium on how to, how to be a better God. He's free to do what he wants, as constrained by who he is, because he's never going to want to do something outside of who he is. He is all good. And so because of all of this, when God says something will be, so it will be. His word comes to pass. His word comes to pass. So when we read a passage like we did, and when I give you the reason for you having that handout, is to be able to go and look. Here's what God said would happen. Here's what happened, just like he said it would. Now, naturally, that's going to go, well, did it happen because he said it and there was no other option, or did it happen the way he said it would because he already had seen the whole movie and knew exactly what would happen? We'll tackle that here in more a second. But just to establish, God is sovereign, He knows all things, and his word comes to pass. He's got this redemptive plan, this purpose and plan for all of humanity that he's working out tangibly. So God exists outside of time, but here's what's amazing. God who exists outside of time, who holds time in his hand, is the personal God who interacts with us inside of time, who in the incarnation experienced time as a human. Conception, growth in a womb, birth, infancy, toddlerhood, childhood. I don't think they had teenagerhood back then. Manhood. So this is not to try to describe, and that's the beauty of our God. Our God is beyond anything we can possibly comprehend, yet he absolutely reveals himself in ways that we can actually comprehend. And not just comprehend, but relate to. Because that is the brilliance of our God. So, God knows all things. He knows all things actual. He knows all things possible. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the course. He knows the script of the rest of history. He knows it. Nothing that happens in our world is a surprise to him. Nothing that happens in our lives ever surprises or catches God off guard. Now, having said that, and we'll come here as we get through my notes here. That doesn't necessarily mean that God causes everything to happen the way it happens. God causes some things, and he allows some things. We'll come back to that. But for now, God is sovereign means he knows all things. He's sovereign. It means sovereignty really speaks to the fact that God is in control, that he alone is the ruler of his creation. Um, it demands He possess all knowledge. It demands all power. It demands absolute freedom to, to, uh, to act. We saw that in the passage Sunday. You see in his, his, and, and his sovereignty, you can divide it up. And we've done this actually last year um, when we looked at our, our series, Godology. We've done this when we looked at God. God's sovereignty played out in terms of preservation. What does God do? He preserves it's, it's by the word. I mean, you and I can comprehend the law of gravity with a mathematical equation, but Scripture tells us literally that that mathematical equation is the word of Jesus sustaining all of creation by the word of his power. That the only reason you and I still have breath at this moment is because God speaks it and wills it that we have breath at this moment. Every aspect of creation is being held together by the very will of God. He, he, he preserves. He governs. He governs his creation. And this takes us down into what we would really call, when we're talking about God's will and his sovereignty in our lives, we're talking about his providence. How he exerts his will in, through, and around our lives. You see this in the passage from Sunday. Or I made mention of it Sunday. I'll make mention of it again. When you read through those 35 verses, there's 10 different times that the most powerful kings in the world have their plans fall apart when they have the most powerful army they'd ever conjured up. Why? Because humans aren't sovereign. And our best intentions and our best plans are ultimately destined to fail. I've got news for all of us. Every wicked despot who's ever ruled in human history, every single one has lost. And not one of them will ever win. Now, it doesn't mean they don't win for a time. It doesn't mean they don't cause real pain and disaster. It doesn't mean that there's not responses by those who can stand up for what's right. It doesn't mean any of that, but it does mean ultimately they all lose. Every one of them is in the ground, body rotting, or will be. Four times in the passage, um, you see very specifically when it came to Antiochus Epiphanes, it makes mention of God had appointed a time. Again, God causes some things, God sets barriers on some things, and God allows some things as the natural consequence and outflow of all choices. And in the midst of all of it, he knows all of it. And you go, well, how can I put that together, Pastor? You can't, because not one of us in this room is sovereign. Do you realize, and I I, I think I, I skipped this part Sunday, a God who is anything less than absolutely sovereign would never create beings with any kind of free will. Because if somehow we, and remember, we—we we, God created us, we have a type of free will. We do not have unlimited free will. You and I cannot get up and do anything we want to do. Case in point, you can't get up and go, I want to be like Superman and fly, and, and, and all of a sudden just shoot through the roof of this building. You can't do it. You know why? Because the laws of gravity are more sovereign on your body than your, your imagination. You can't, by the, your own word of power, go, let there be light, and there be light. Because our words don't have creative power in the same way that God's word has absolute creative. Right? We have a type of free will. And the words I use Sunday, and I try to use them consistently, the type of free will God has given us, say, so well, why do we have a type of free will? Well, because we were made in the image of God. Realize nothing else in creation is in the image of God, only humankind. And in all of creation, seen and unseen, there's only two beings that have any type of free will, the, the angelic, demonic, the spirit beings, and then us. But realize, I mean, do you realize when Jesus was on earth, no part of creation outside of humanity and i and interestingly enough even the demons we can include them in this no part of creation except for humanity ever told him no when when he saw the waves rushing peace be still instantly the waves submit when he tells food to multiply in ways that are s- supernatural instantly it submits When he comes up to a demon and says, get out right now, instantly it submitted. Yet he came to his own, John 1, and his own rejected him and did not submit. You and I humankind are unique because we alone in all creation are made in the image of God who has absolute free will. We have a type of free will. The type of free will we have, I'd give you four terms. It's what I use Sunday. It is personal, meaning that you and I have the ability to make choices. What I did with my time today, ultimately, I made the choice. You didn't make it for me. I made it for me. It's personal. It's moral. We possess the ability to make decisions that are either right or wrong, good or Or bad, don't mistake, certainly there are some decisions you can make that are morally neutral. Like, for the most part, whether you're going to go get a Coke or a Dr. Pepper, that's a morally neutral decision. It can be a right or wrong, depending on if your doctor has said, cut out all that sugar. But we have the ability to make decisions that are either right or wrong, moral, consequential. Our decisions have consequences. The decisions we make have actual tangible impact. They have consequences for us. They have consequences for others. They have consequences for us with ourselves. They have consequences for us with other people. They have consequences for us with God. There are consequences to our actions, and those consequences are both... um, temporal, and eternal. Now, whether um, whether you get a Dr. Pepper or a Coke, or maybe better yet, whether you go to Taco Bell or Salada is going to be a temporal consequence for your body. I don't know that that's going to echo into eternity. Whether or not at Salada the person that God clearly prompts on your heart to go sit down and talk to and there's an open door to share the gospel with, that's a a conversation that will or will not echo into eternity. They're consequential, there's constant. And then the fourth thing is, you can use accountable or responsible. Ultimately, we as human beings give an account to God for our actions. It's interesting, by nature, you and I are born by nature sinners. By nature, children of wrath. By nature, from the very moment of conception, you and I are sinners. There's never a moment of our existence where we are righteous. Prior to Christ, obviously. Once you come to faith in Christ, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. But what's interesting is when you read the passages about what sinners are judged for, They're not judged based on their nature. They're judged based on their deeds as recorded in the books. Now, we do sinful things because we are sinners. That's how that flows. But my whole point is there is an account. By the way, there's an account for us as Christians. Now, it's not the same our account as Christians is all the action of our life as Christ followers all the ways we either obey and believe or we disobey and all of that set on an altar before Jesus and his holy fire comes down and touches it according to 1 Corinthians 3 and it either uh, is either refined into things that are for our reward for further reward for eternity or things that are to uh, a, a not reward for eternity. And you're going to go, well, what's that mean, pastor? I can't tell you. All I can say is you're going to get all of heaven. You're going to get all of earth, the new heaven, new earth. You're going to get all of Jesus. And somehow in that, those of us who are faithful to the Lord will be rewarded in a way that those of us who are truly saved but aren't faithful to the Lord won't be. It's there. Because we give an account for our actions. So when you Come in with all of this. We say God is sovereign. He knows all things. He's free to act. Uh, we, we don't have an unlimited sovereignty. We have a, or a limited free will. We have a type of free will, that this free will is only because God gave it to us. And if God was anything less than sovereign, he wouldn't give it to us. If we have a piece of, if there's something I know that God doesn't, that's a danger to God's sovereignty because it could cost him his rule. If there is some aspect of power that I possess, he doesn't possess, that's a danger to his sovereignty because could it be something I could work to my advantage to pull him off the throne? You see, understand, and you go, well, I've kind of fallen pastor, maybe not. Well, you can follow because this is the debate right now regarding artificial intelligence. The reason there is a debate in our culture about whether AI, there should be limits or not limits, is because inherently, we realize as humans, we are not absolutely sovereign. Does AI have something that would overcome what we think we have and destroy us? That's the whole debate. We're scared of AI because we are not sovereign. God's not scared to make us with a type of free will because he is sovereign. And it's in his sovereignty that God decided, knowing every possible way, all knowledge, he knows every way he could have made us. And he has all power, meaning he has the ability to make us any one of those ways. And he is all good, which means he would only desire to make us in the best of all possible ways. And here we are, the pinnacle of God's creation, whom God made, Knowing what we could do with the type of free will we have, which is to deny his will, which is what we call sin. Sin is a denial of the will of God. And it's what we did. God's will was, here's our, here's Eden. Eat of this, this, this. Don't eat of this one place. Take which you see here in Eden with me and go out into this world I've created you and spread it. Be fruitful and multiply. Exercise dominion. And what did we do? We listened to a liar, and we made that choice. Satan didn't make it for us. We made it. It was wrong. It had consequences. It broke everything. Broke our relationship to ourselves. broke our relationship to each other, and most importantly, broke our relationship with God. And we're accountable for it. Any God who's anything less than sovereign would not make us this way. So it takes us all the way around to this and go, so does that mean somehow when we take all this and we say God is sovereign, that his plans come to pass, that we've got this type of free will, what it means is we can thoroughly reject any idea that somehow life is fatalistic, that somehow life has all been predetermined by God, that God sat down uh, before time again, and he sat there, and he wrote, wrote the script, and and everything that you do is, is right on pace with his script. And, and so there's really no decision. You don't possess the ability to make one of two decisions. It's already been scripted out for you. That's, that's fatalism. And, and, and by, if you do a historical study, fatalism is always a pagan idea. Life is not fatalistic. It can't be fatalistic if God gave us a type of free will. Now, no mistake. You're going, well, how does that type of free will and his sovereignty go together? Well, there's parts of that we can understand, and I got news for you. There's parts of that I will never, no matter how long I'm your pastor, ever be able to explain to you, because it's beyond my pay grade as a human being. I gave you the example of, well, how do those things play together? I gave you the example A. W. Tozer came up with, which says God's sovereignty is like all of us being on it. When you when you board a ship, um, when you board a ship in New York, sailing over the Atlantic for Liverpool, you get on that ship. There's all sorts of things you have free will to do on that ship. Some good, some bad. You could start a riot that the captain has to come down and squelch. But it doesn't matter what you do on that ship. The captain is sovereign of that steering wheel, and that ship is going to Liverpool no matter whether you like it or not. There is a way in which they go together, which means... God does not cause everything that happens to happen, i.e., what some boys in one of my classes, a freshman in college, shouted out trying to pick on the professor. Well, professor, it was God's will that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Can't be God's will because God's will cannot be sin. God's will was to defy his will? That's self contradicting. It means when we come in and we all of a sudden maybe back into another corner where we fear the sovereignty of God. If one corner is to, to see all life as fatalistic, another corner is maybe we don't see it all as fatalistic, but we just, in some ignorance, we just blame God for everything, positively and negatively. Oh, this thing happened when I was God. Oh, this person died. Oh, it must be because God wanted another angel. They died by suicide. Oh, this leader's been elected. Well, it must be God's will because God puts every leader on the throne. I don't know that it says God puts every leader on the throne. It's clear as he puts some leaders on the throne and some leaders, he allows us a choice to put on the throne. And we better be really careful of when we go around saying what God did or didn't do there because unlike the days of the prophets, we don't have a prophet today who's sitting around going, let me tell you the mind of God as he told it to me. The other corner is to back in and go, wow, God is sovereign. He's got this plan for my life and I am terrified spitless to make any decision because I don't want to mess it up. There's all these corners that we can back into, and that's my aim with the rest of the time tonight and the application of it, is to help us not back into corners that somehow maybe take some parts of scriptural truth, but then end up in a corner that's outside the bounds of where scripture lets us go about who God is. What we do know is God knows all things. What we do know is God allows us to make decisions that have real impact. What we do know is we need to understand him with the words he chooses to to give himself, to describe himself and not try to put, um, put on uh, our own limitations onto him. Uh, here's the reality: God knows every decision you and I will make. Do our decisions matter? Yes. Yes, they do. Because there is the ability to make a decision that is in line with Him, His character, and His will. There is the real ability to make a decision that honors him and that he honors, and there is equally the ability to make a decision that will fail to honor him and that he will not honor. Our decisions matter under his sovereignty. So just, just for a second, nature of God's will, when we talk about God's will in Scripture, there's some different ways. Most of us get think of God's will and we think about things like what's God's will? Who should I date? Who should I marry? What job should I have? When should I retire? And we get all caught up in those questions when the overwhelming majority of God's will spoken about in scripture has to do with his plan of redemption or the impact of that redemption in our life as those who've been saved, who've been redeemed. Let me give you an example. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. You say, Pastor, what's God's will for my life? I'm going to answer the question for you right now. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the Avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. And it goes on from there. Uh, you come to Second Peter chapter three verse nine. And you say, well, "Well, what is God's will? What's God's desire for the world?" The Lord is not slow as some about His promises; some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish but all to come to know him there are countless places all over scripture that tell us plainly this is the will of God the overwhelming majority of God's will for our lives is spelled out in the pages of scripture now there are some things that aren't spelled out there is no verse in the bible that told me who to marry But there's a lot of verses in the Bible that tell me the kind of way I'm supposed to walk in humility with God, the way in which I'm supposed to trust God, the way in which I should be hearing His voice, and the kind of person I should marry versus the kind of person I shouldn't. There's no verse in the Bible that tells you what job to take. But there's a whole lot in the Bible that tells you what jobs are righteous, what jobs might fall into an unrighteous category, and how you are to glorify God in that job. See, the reality is sometimes the things that are not clearly written out, we get ourselves in trouble because we do not have enough humility to acknowledge that there are areas in our life where we are either not believing or we are living in willful rejection of what his written word has already said. And how many decisions as you grow in Christ, have you ever thought if I had just simply believed that I wouldn't have made that decision? Bingo. Case in point. The reality is there when we speak about God's will, there are aspects of God's will. And and again, we're, we're, we're being constrained by the English language here. There are aspects of God's will that will absolutely come to pass. The boat is going to Liverpool. History is moving towards heaven, new heaven and new earth. God's will will come to pass. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus saves, Jesus is returning. Jesus will judge the living and dead. Jesus will wipe every one of our tears away for those of us in Him. Jesus will dwell with new humanity. Jesus will establish the new heaven and the new earth. There are aspects of God's will that will not fail to come to pass. By the way, God completely and totally conforming you and I in the image of Jesus is one of those things. He who started a good work in, you will not fail to bring it to pass. Now, we can make it a lot easier on ourselves. There are aspects of God's will or God's desires that don't all come to pass. say, wait, what do you mean, pastor? Well, I just read you one. God's desire is that every human being would come to faith in Christ and be saved. But not every human being will come to faith in Christ and be saved. We're not universalists. Those who choose to reject Christ will not be saved. Instead, they will face full judgment and account for their sin. But why is that the case? Because God created us with a type of free will to relate to him where we could make a choice. You know what's not a choice, though? It's the quote I read at the end of the sermon on Sunday. You can choose to accept Christ or reject Christ. That's your choice. But the consequences of that choice, you don't get to barter the terms of. God causes some things. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. The appointed time. God allows some things. Our fall into sin. Decisions that we make. There's times God causes. There's time God allows. Ultimately, it's all tied into. but, but but, But in all of that, God is still sovereign on his throne, and there is no action any human being can take that will ultimately stop the fullness of his plans from being finished. Same thing just on a very broad level. You can truly be saved and live a very disobedient life. Now, a lot of people who claim to be saved and live disobedient lives probably because they're not really saved. But it is possible to be saved and to walk in sin. It's possible. We all do it question is just how long can you do it and, 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 and still really be sure you're saved? We all do it. You, you can walk in sin, but here's the crazy reality of it all. If you are really in Christ, God is going to finish his sanctification of your life, but it may be by taking you home. But God will finish. There are things God causes. There's things God allows. So how does this impact us personally? Our God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he has called us to make decisions. He's told us who he is and what decisions to make. And he lives within us to convict us of those decisions and to empower us to actually make the right decision. He's made it quite simple because we are quite weak. God is sovereign, and our decisions do matter. Our decisions, the decisions we make, do matter. He has a plan for our lives. Most of it He reveals in His Word. That which He does not, He makes clear to us on what to do. Seek and submit to Him in love. Trust Him in faith. Resting on His Word, though unseen. Obey what He says." If God's sovereignty paralyzes us, oh, so no, I'm, I'm, I can't make a decision because what if I make the wrong decision? If it paralyzes us in fear or if it excuses our laziness, this was the classic William Carey, the father of modern missions. He tells the, man, the pastor who ordained him, God has told me there's no one in India sharing the gospel. I've got to go and make disciples just like he said. And that pastor, having a very fatalistic understanding of God's sovereignty, looked him right back in the eyes and rebuked him and said, son, if God wants to, to win the heathen will do it on his own time, he doesn't need you to do it. If we excuse our laziness, that's a misunderstanding. If we pervert his sovereignty to justify our sin, or our own personal choices, well, you know what? I made this choice, so it must be God's will for me because I did it. Woo! Slow your roll there. As the Students once said last decade, if those are the ways we see God's sovereignty, then we in fact do not understand God's sovereignty. If we truly understand his sovereignty, it should enliven, encourage, and embolden us to love him, to worship and adore him with all of our being. God's sovereignty means that if we make a poor decision, he is more than capable of acting to overcome our decision as his children. Not only is he more than capable to overcome the decision, he's more than capable to try to get us to not make the decision before we make it. Conviction. He's more than capable of stopping us before we walk too far down that path to lead to disaster. He's more than capable. This is is called, by the way, this is simply called Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines those whom he loves. And guess what? God's sovereignty means if we start to make a bad decision. It means God doesn't have to wait for our permission to do something to intervene in our life because he's free to act in accordance with his character and will, which means if you start to make a decision that's wrong, if you start as a child of God to go down a path you shouldn't be going down, he's free to act in full accordance with his wisdom in the way that's gonna get your attention and snap you back to reality. Let me give you an example. You know my wife is Bethany, not Kelsey, but you could have known my wife is Kelsey if I had messed up. My senior year of college, uh, I, I stories, make the story very, very simple and short, but there was a girl named Kelsey that I dated, great, godly girl. She was pretty, she was smart, she was fun, she was godly we dated, and through very innocent, naive reasonings, ultimately came to this point of having spent time in prayer about it, of having felt this feeling of peace, we're supposed to get married. And we start fast-tracking, making those decisions to get married. Now, she's going to school several states away, so that's part of the fast-tracking, is we got to figure out how to navigate all this, and and I'm going to seminary, and at that time, God's going to ship me out in two years overseas, and all of this. And And God let me walk down that path for a little bit. And I'll never forget driving back from her family's five-hour drive back to my university from a weekend I had spent with her family. And I have never felt more of a train wreck in my entire life. Now, nothing happened that was bad. Nothing happened. There wasn't some moral failing on our part. There wasn't some horrible thing that happened with her family. But I have never felt that level of train wreck in my spirit, and I could not get over it for two weeks. And then through praying, seeking counsel, I'll never forget where I was at on the phone with my parents. They asked me a very specific question that when I answered, it was like the storm in my heart instantly calmed and all the clouds pulled back and I could see everything clearly. And the answer to the question was, I'm not supposed to marry Kelsey. Kelsey. And I look at that, and I go, God let me walk. I was living in a lot of fear of the future. I had major expectations about what I thought good things, God things, according to the word, were to be in my life that I was not aware of, that I was not actively laying down and surrender to the Lord. Here's a girl who fit the boxes. Here's a girl. And I don't think the issue was having dated her. The issue was we started to go beyond what God gave freedom to do. She's a great girl. I have no contact with her to today. There's nothing ill, nothing of this story is to speak ill of her. But she was not who God had for me to marry. And you know what's great? God let me lock long enough, and then he popped the leash. And he popped the leash in a way where I would be the most humble to look up and go, oh my goodness, Lord, look what I got myself into. How did I get here? Oh, by the way, telling everybody, you told me I'm supposed to marry her. How did I mishear you? How did I misunderstand that? What were the warning signs? Oh, there's plenty of them, by the way. Time doesn't permit. Tonight's not a night to talk about Wes's past dating life, but the whole point. (laughs) The whole point is God and his sovereignty. The beauty of this is that we don't have to be paralyzed in fear. Do what his word says and trust him enough that the God of the universe who out of his love would put his son on the cross and crush him with hell, why we were children of rebellion, according to scripture, would not dare in his sovereignty somehow pull back in that love on the life of his own children that he bought with the blood of Jesus oh, it's a good thing he's sovereign. I can make choices with with confidence. I can make choices about whether or not I should have a Dr. Pepper or a Coke with confidence because if I'm about to do something wrong, the Holy Spirit will convict me. And if the Holy Spirit's not convicting me, then go pick what do you want, a Dr. Pepper or a Coke? I won't have either because I don't like Coke or Dr. Pepper. (laughs) But God bless those of you who do. I can't promise you it'll be in heaven, so drink it now. Uh, but heaven's not according to my will, so you'll have to ask him. Sometimes we make wrong decisions because we're driven by insecurities, by wrong belief. Guess what? You know what? God allowing us to make wrong decisions that then he exposes in his discipline and conviction, you know what that's called? It's called sanctification. It's called working us out and conforming us into the image of Christ. Let me give you another example. It is easy for me. It is easy for me, the way that I am wired in my disposition, it is very easy for me to have, or the way my youth pastor once put it, is people typically tend to be pulled to one of two extreme poles. God is love or God is wrath. Now, with people, well, I want not say with me personally, it's very easy for me to go to the God is wrath part, so God is mad at me, God is disappointed in me, I I'm I'm am I'm such a, a horribly internal perfectionist, and so it is easy for me to have that disposition. But then listen to what God writes to his people who are actively living in sin. This was something that I, I read just a few weeks ago, and I'm going to show you how all of this, what I'm talking about with God's sovereignty, how it applies every day in, in our lives, what I mean here. Here's what He says, He says in Isaiah 54 to his children who are living in sin, he says, fear not, you will not be put to shame. You will not be humiliated for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. You drop down a few verses. It says, in a brief moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger or in an overflowing of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, I'll spare you a whole sermon breaking down all the words, but if you listen to that, it says, you were in sin and there was a moment where I poured out, I brought the paddle out. There was a moment, an instant. Everlasting loving kindness, which is the word Kassed, which is his loyal covenant love, his mercy. We use several different English words to translate it based on context. He says, this is, is how I relate to you. Because of your choices, for a moment, this is what you got to experience. And so I had to sit there reading that the other day and go, okay, because remember what we said at the beginning of the day, the whole deal is if God is really sovereign, if he's really on his throne, then what he says, his word goes. So as I sit there one day in my very perfectionist personality, not feeling very perfect, feeling quite tired, quite worn down, as Jesse jumps back after not having had split nights for several months, all of a sudden having these random split nights, exhausted, trying to figure out, I want to be a good husband, I want to be a good dad, I want to be a good pastor, and all the while, how to, and here, and I'm just feeling all this imperfection, and oh, and, and what does that do naturally for me? Oh, well, God must be mad, God must be, and then I sit down and I read that passage, and you know what I have to do? Right now, I feel the fear that God is disappointed in me. He's not convicted me of anything actively that I need to repent of, but I feel this fear. Guess what? If God is sovereign and his word goes, then that means I don't get to sit there in that moment before God and relate to him on the basis of the fear I feel. It means I have to relate to him on the basis of who he says he is which is, son, I will correct you if you are out of line, but understand the basic disposition of my relationship with you is everlasting covenant, loyal love, and faithfulness for my good and your life. God is sovereign means I have to take his word seriously. If God is sovereign, it means that in the times we're living in, when we flip on the news, I cannot tell you what is going on today that God is causing versus he is allowing. I can't tell you that clearly. There's just too much going on. What I can tell you is there is nothing happening in our world today that is surprising God There is nothing happening in our world today where God's going, man, I didn't prep for that. There's nothing happening in our world today and the implications of what it means for you and me as followers of Christ, as those saved by grace through faith, there is nothing happening where God's going, I'm not sure I know how to equip my people for that. No, God being sovereign means he knows every bit of what is happening. He knew every bit of what is happening today when Jesus was on the cross. He knew every bit of what is happening today before the foundations of the world, because he holds all time equally in his hand. And he knows, because I know the classic debate for Christians, oh, we're living in the end times. We could be. We could be another hundred years from the end times. You know how many people thought Hitler was the Antichrist? A lot. And they're wrong. I don't know when the Lord is coming back. There's certainly some things that have happened in the last 10 years that go, wow, that passage of scripture is starting to make a little more sense now. But that's not for us to know. Our job is to know him. Our job is to pay attention to the signs and in pay attention to the signs. When Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 to his disciples, pay attention to the signs. The context is not so you can know the instant I'm coming back. The context is so you will live with courage because I'm in control. So that you won't capitulate when you see churches espousing false doctrine. Guess what they're doing? Just what god's word said churches would do 2nd Timothy chapter 3 god's people will assemble them for symbol for or people claiming to be god's people will assemble for them for symbol for themselves preachers to tickle their ears even all of the craziness going on in the church today it's all in line with what his word says all of it. And if you and I don't recognize that he is sovereign, if we don't truly rest in the fact that he is bigger, that he is greater than us, that he is not surprised, then you and I will go to a very fear-filled place. And don't mistake me, I don't mean concerned. If you can live in the world today and not be concerned, you must not have much mercy or a normal human head on your shoulders. But there is a difference between being concerned and burdened in a biblical way and being beat down, despair-ridden, hopeless, and fearful. And it is never the place for the people of God to live beat down, despair-filled, and hopeless. That is a denial of our Savior. So we have got to understand, God is sovereign. Does he give us a kind of free will to make choices? Yes, and I've got great news for us. He has gone to great lengths to help us know what choices to make. And he's told us, my grace is always sufficient for you to make the right choice. And my sovereignty and love for you is always good, that even when you ignore the sufficiency of my grace to make that right choice, I still love you and I'm not giving up on you. So what does this mean when you come in and you go, okay, it means that we have to be people who know God for who he is and live by his word. It's real simple. We gotta know him for who he is. That's part of, when you go back, and I'll... I'll, I'll now you be careful, I'm not going to preach half a Sunday sermon tonight, but we'll go back a little bit this Sunday and see that. He talks about, in this time, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's going to use words, smooth words, to, 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 to twist some of God's people away, and it sets up for the Antichrist that we'll talk about this Sunday in verse 36. The, the spirit of the Antichrist, which is already present, whether or not the capital A Antichrist is present or not, I don't know that, that we'll find out. If or if not, we'll find out if there's no pre-tribulation rapture and, if, and, and when there's a seven-year clear covenant sign that changes the whole landscape of the Middle East. And you go, what is all that about, pastor? Don't worry, we'll get there in the fall. I'll tell you more. <laughs> Some of it we'll talk about Sunday. But Jesus said as the times move closer to his return, the love of many will grow cold. And people won't follow his word. They'll assemble for themselves people to tickle their ears. None of this is by surprise. None of this is catching him off guard. And it shouldn't catch us either. It should drive us to be way more careful. What it should drive us, what it should drive us to do is to know who he truly is. It says in those passages, it's the ones who know God who didn't fall. You and I need to know God for who he is, not who you and I feel he is. Even if you've known Jesus for decades, I've known Jesus since August 14th of 1994 I know I'm young, but I'm about to be a 30-year-old believer next year. I have to know God for who He says He is, not who I feel He is, nor who I fear He is. Because my feelings and my fears sometimes don't line up with His Word. It also means this. It means people have to know who Jesus says He is, not who culture says He is. There's only one way to know Jesus, by grace through faith. You're not born into Jesus. You have to come to a moment of repentance to know Jesus. Works cannot justify and restore you, only repenting through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It means for those of us who've responded in that way, we have to submit to the sanctification of his loving discipline. Listen, God's salvation in our life is not about our personal worldly happiness. God being sovereign doesn't mean you and I get to have an Instagrammable life. If you go, what's an Instagrammable life? A better home and garden life. It's about his holiness transforming us through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It is his working to conform us to Jesus' image, not giving us all of our worldly dreams. The amazing thing is for many of us, he's given many of our dreams. But the reality is that's not what he's about. We need to understand God's work in our life is to make us look like Jesus and to use us for his glory. And many times, do you want to know how Jesus was used for the glory of God? he suffered. So why do we, the students, think that we are going to be somehow different than the teacher? Why do we, the disciples, think we're going to somehow be different than the Lord? Why do we, the servants, think we're going to be somehow different than the master? To rephrase what Jesus said. It means we submit to his sanctification, but it also means, church family, we anticipate the glorification. God's salvation is not about hard training. God's salvation is not about, let me just make your time on earth hard any more than all the crazy football guys going back to two-a-days. In theory, I saw some pictures. A&M, the guys are back, right? They're back. It's hot, it's humid, it's miserable. There's a reason I, for the rest of my life, will never run at three in the afternoon, and it's because I did too much of it as a teenager in this weather. I hate it. I can tell you, August in Texas will never exist in New Heaven and New Earth. Never. <laughs> I feel very confident. And if the Lord tells me I'm wrong and I die tonight and strikes me down, y'all can just know that I was heresy and somehow you'll enjoy it in heaven. (laughs) But a football team doesn't go out there if they're they're worth their salt and they have a good coach. They do not go out there to just have a hard practice for the sake of hard practice. They go out and practice hard for the sake of winning a championship. God does not have us suffer in this life just to suffer because that's some kind of the way it is. If we suffer in this life, it is ultimately part of his redemption that we will see in full glory. The moment we see his glory and he glorifies us just as he promised he would. We anticipate that. He is preparing us for what is to come. By the way, judgment in the life of the believer should not be, oh, I'm so scared to put my life on the altar. If I'm so scared, it means I'm not, yeah, it means one of two things. Either I'm not living faithfully, I'd encourage you to maybe get in his word and let's change that. Or it means I don't understand him correctly, and I'd encourage you to get in the word and let's change that. <laughs> the idea of judgment for a believer, God wants to reward faithful lives. He's not like, "Oh, well done, good and faithful servant." Well done. Good. Judgment is supposed to be something that is a joyous thing for us by the grace of God. We live in anticipation of it. So ultimately it comes down to this. If we're we got to know him truly and we got to live according to his word. That is the resounding point from Sunday. God's word comes to pass with flawless perfection. He says it because it will be and it will be because he says it. We must hold fast despite popular and changing opinions. It means we're going to have to know the word. It means we're going to have to know how to understand and read His word as he wrote it. not as we want to think it is or the internet preachers tell us it is. It will mean hardship and costliness. By the way, it also says that those it says about those in Daniel 11, it said they know God. It said they lived by the insight of his word and they helped bring understanding to others. It's not just about me doing God's word. It's about me doing God's word and helping other people understand God's word. And by understanding God's word, what I mean is know God personally at his word. And we'll see that more this Sunday. So I won't expound on it. The simple point is this. If God is really sovereign, we have to be people of his word word, yet many times we will, amen, this is what his word tells me to do, yet we will go live in ways that don't line up with his word. Mom and dad, this is what his word tells you about raising your kid. Amen. That's good, pastor. Now we're going to ignore it over here. Don't be surprised when your kid strays. Oh, God's word. It says we as the people of God should not neglect the coming together. Amen, it's good to be together as a church family. Yet on average, the average church member shows up less than two times a month. We don't believe God's sovereign. We believe we're sovereign, which is why we can amen the truth of his word and then go ignore it. And the sad reality is when we ignore his word, the consequences of ignoring his word happen just like he says in his word they will happen. Israel ended up in exile as a consequence for ignoring his word, the exact consequence he said would happen in Deuteronomy. So church family, I say, we've got to be people of his word. We've got to lay down every last part of ourselves and line it up with his word. How does strength comes when times are hard? It comes because we acknowledge that our God is in fact sovereign over our day. It does not mean hard days will not come. It does not mean that we will be physically protected. What it does mean is he is in control, his word is good, and our response is to know him, to love him, and to trust him at his word. And as we do that, I've got news for all of us when it comes to taking decisions in our lives. As we humbly submit to his word, we'll be able to look back and go, you know what, I thought that was God, but that was really me. Versus, oh that's, here's the problem with this whole topic tonight. I can't sit here and look into all of your lives and go, "Well, this is what God caused in your life. this is what God allowed in your life, we don't have enough time for that. And frankly, even if you just sit down and tell me, I'm not promising I could be able to discern that. But I promise as we humbly, there's so many more things that I look back in my life with clarity and see all because of a posture of prolonged humility to go, "Wow, God, I really missed you here. Or wow, God. There's a very key moment in college where I felt like God moved on my heart to do something, and then the door seemed shut, and I never, get, never did it. And all of the counsel of my immediate counsel around me all said, well, just wait, and the door will open, and it never did. The irony being, every older believer who was removed, but decades down the line said, you just need to go up and knock on the door. And for years, and that, and that, really that moment, there was a lot tied to that moment, but that moment was a major moment that has the, the ramifications of which have taken years to process out of my life. And the irony came the other day as I realized, I don't know that I misheard, because I always wonder, well, I how did I mishear God so badly? Well, time and humility has come back around. I don't know that I misheard God so badly. I think I just chickened out of doing what he told me to do. And there's consequences for that. There's consequences for that. Now, praise God. My God is sovereign. And my my God being sovereign means even when I chicken out, he's still faithful to get me back on the course and lead me on the path that takes me home. What a beauty. Our God is sovereign. Our choices matter. He's given us the ability to make good choices. So as we live and move and breathe in these days, most of us will never be known on a world stage. But every one of us, God has placed us for such a time as this in this church and in this community to make real decisions, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, real decisions that we make, right or wrong, that echo into eternity, that we'll give an account for, and that we can have the courage to make because our God is on the throne and he is sovereign and he is good. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're good. Thank you that we can live with confidence. And so Lord, wherever we are off, and I just thank you Lord that you are so unbelievably patient with us. You are so patient and you are so faithful. So God, may we not retreat to these poor corners that misunderstand your sovereignty, but may we understand, Lord, what it means that you're on your throne. What it means is you're on your throne, you're not surprised. It means there's some things in our world today, undoubtedly, you're probably behind and are causing. There's some things in our world today that you're allowing as the consequence of the poor decisions of humanity, Lord. And my job is not to be able to discern all of that, this or that. My job is to know you. And what of that I need to know? Holy Spirit, you'll give me the discernment to know. But Lord, my job is to know you, to walk with you. And what walking by faith with you this side of heaven means is to walk by faith on your word in a relationship with you. Holy Spirit, what you do is you convict us, you bring to remembrance the word in our life, you empower us, you give us grace, you bear your fruit in our lives. And so, Lord, may we not be hopeless people, because, God, the reality is things don't seem too great on the horizon of our world history. And whether the end is really around the corner, if it is, we know it will be worse than anything that's ever come before. And if it's not, it still seems that there are some really rough waters we've never had to navigate in this country before, and for many, that terrifies us. God, the fact that you are sovereign means you go before us into those days. It means you've already gone before us. It means you go with us. And so, you give us the same commands you gave your children of the people of Israel as you called them to cross into the promised land. You said, I go before you, I go with you. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. So, Lord, may we, like little children, with confidence, you, Jesus, who are a great high priest, who knows what it's like to be, to experience the frailty of humanity, with boldness and confidence, Lord, may we run. into your throne room and take our seat on your sovereign lap and find the grace and mercy we need for such a day as today. And Jesus prays you that you are a God who delights to pour out grace and mercy in abundance. So may we be humble enough to realize we're weak and we need your grace and mercy. Jesus, thank you for our church family. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you are alive and you are moving and breathing in our midst. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray, amen.